Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick. This is episode number 56 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you this week by Peghead Nation, with Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old-time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses including... Beginning Mandolin and Intermediate Bluegrass Mandolin and her new course, the Bluegrass Mandolin Fingerboard Method, Sharon Gilchrist. Bluegrass Mandolin Jam Favorites and the Advancing Mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh. Monroe Style Mandolin with Mike Compton. Melodic Mandolin Tunes with John Reichman. Chord Melody Mandolin with Aaron Weinstein. Irish Mandolin with uh, Myra Fibish, And Theory for Mandolin and Fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month free. Just go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. It's also brought to you this week by Northfield Mandolins. Northfield, let's build more than a mandolin together. Uh, Go to their website. I'll have a link at my... um, page mandolinsandbeer.com where you can also get yourself some some swag some stickers some hats i also have a limited amount of the tie-dyed t-shirts left and they they're they're great looking they're the black shirts and they're tie-dyed with kind of bleach and they look tortoise shell like they're really really cool looking and there's a few of those left and i believe i've got them in medium large and extra large left but there's not many uh and i did get more hats so so all that stuff is in stock. Also, once again, Caleb Edwards is going to be doing the uh, online mandolin classes for September. Uh, he's doing different mandolin styles and techniques. Each one's a four-part class on each subject, and September is devoted to Intro to Bluegrass Mandolin. And he's also offering his beginner class again, too. Other uh, two separate classes. Um, I mentioned it last time when he was doing this. Caleb is an incredible player. His tone, his technique... Um, just great he's one of those dudes who can play fast and it sounds amazing he doesn't lose the tone and he's a super nice guy so if you're not familiar with his playing go to his instagram and look at some of his uh solo mandolin clips check out his album um or you can check out his bands uh runa or uh, lateral blue they're all great but the but the new class here the bluegrass one it's the intro to bluegrass will cover fundamentals of traditional bluegrass and go into its evolution and it will include instruction on groove, improvisation, phrasing, and analysis from songs of Bill Monroe to Adam Steffi. And then the beginner course will be four-part series on proper technique, basic music theory, basic ear training, rhythm, and tunes. Anyone interested can go to calebplaysmandolin.com forward slash lessons. And any mention of Mandolins of Beer will get you 10% uh, off the course, a 10% discount. So thanks to Caleb. Such a nice dude, man. So check him out. Thank you, Caleb. Let's get into the... Uh, to the uh, interview today with Wayne Benson. Wayne's an incredible player. Uh, he's the guy that's on those bluegrass 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 2000 albums that are so incredible. Obviously, third time out as well. There's some great stories in here. My dogs are barking in the background. Um, and uh, thank you guys so much for listening. The Spotify playlist will have the tunes that are featured in this episode. And uh, follow me on Instagram and the Facebooks, Mandolins and Beer. Cheers, everybody. Thank you so much for all your support. All right, now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Wayne Benson. Wayne, how you doing today? 
I'm great. Man, thank you so much for doing this today. And you were just on a, uh, you just did an interview earlier for a YouTube channel for uh, musicians from the Carolinas or bluegrass musicians from the Carolinas. I did with Darren and Brooke Aldridge earlier today. We did a Zoom call. They have a fairly new channel. It seems like they said maybe I was the ninth or the tenth guest. Oh, nice. That's great, man. Well, that's a a good time to get you on YouTube. You have a, a new YouTube channel, Wayne's World Mandolin. That's right. Wayne's World of, of Mandolin. Mandolin. Of Mandolin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Let's talk about that real quick. Those are some killer videos. Well, I appreciate that. It's The channel's really young there. I think I've made a total of 16 videos at this point, but maybe only 14 of them are on the channel. I'm about to, I'm doing like one upload each week and I'm about to start, I guess what you would, what I would think of as the third batch of videos. It's been a little weird to get started with the, the whole coronavirus and the shutdown. Kristen and I have tried to take care of some things that we've wanted to for years. One was like repainting and kind of remodeling the bonus room we have above our garage. So I've had to move the whole set, like where my tripod and (laughs) everything that I've had has been moved. And I've just now, I actually have like a permanent location in our house to do the videos. So I'm hoping that they become more consistent as far as lighting and sound and all of that since I don't have to move all of it around anymore. So it's still a young channel. At this point, I think either five or six weeks since it launched. For the listeners out there who might not have seen it yet, what are you, um, what are you doing with this YouTube channel? That, or what are you uh, comp- trying to accomplish with it? Well, to give myself more of an online presence and the initial idea just as a teacher, because I do a lot of one-on-one lessons with people in person and Skype. But if I'm talking about a particular subject, I'm, I'm not a teacher that writes a lot of stuff down. And I'm, I'm not a real big fan of tab because it seems like if you're focused on that, a lot of times you're not really absorbing as much about the fretboard of the mandolin and like growing that attachment of your ear to the fretboard. But if I touch on something, it's real easy for me to send that person a link to one of the videos and say, hey, this use this for reference if you find yourself lost with the with a particular topic. So that's part of the motivation. But I've always wanted to do a YouTube channel, but never had the time until this whole shutdown and yeah, I knew if I was able to make enough videos to get off the ground that like one upload each week is a doable thing, even if my playing schedule does return to those numbers of gigs that we had pre-COVID-19. I love the uh, I love the videos, um, I, the couple that I've seen too, but I really, really like is how you're a big proponent of using the entire neck. You know, so if you're working on, if you're in the key of D, like not ignoring the G string, like no work, you start on the lowest note of the D scale and work your way up. I think that's great stuff that a lot of stuff just gets like glossed over. It sure can. And for me, the, I meet so many people that are everything that they, that they know about playing is coming from memorizing tunes, you know, and this is basically, if I had to sum up what I want the channel to accomplish, 
so many people that have played for maybe two years, maybe as long as 15 years. And in that amount of time, they manage to memorize, let's say, 50 standards. If they're whatever genre of music that they are into, if it's bluegrass, you know, they're playing red haired boy. Maybe they've memorized a break for nine pound hammer for your love is like a flower, all the standards that get called. And if your approach to learning the instrument had been a little bit different, instead of learning those 50 breaks, you could have learned how to play the mandolin. And, and there, you know, and there's a big difference between those two things. Not everyone makes that leap of if you learn to play leather britches, that becomes it's not like you learn the G scale. You know that that scale is the underlying information. Some people, if they don't even know that scale, use that information to be creative from that point forward when they're playing in G. Not everybody makes that connection. And that's what I hope to do is, is you know, to make people realize, hey, if my ear hasn't developed in some of these ways, maybe I really haven't given it a chance. You know, yeah, yeah. So just kind of point someone in a different direction, and they're great quality too, man. They uh, they all look really, really good. Well, I appreciate that. Again, it's the whole thing is um, is done on my Android phone. I oh, don't no have kidding. A, yeah, I'm using uh, Power Director for the editing. It's it's on my phone and the thumbnails, everything just on my Android. Get out of here! Wow, man, <laughs> that's yeah. amazing. So how long, man? With this downtime, how long have you been touring since? How long have I been, uh, like, with third time out? Just in general, like, how, like, um, as far as, like, being on the road, like, oh, you've been man. doing it. Yeah. I have, yeah. I'm an old cat compared to you, Daniel. <laughs> well, I don't know I'm, about that. I'm 51 years old. I started playing with Livewire when I was 19, so pretty much right out of high school. That was a band with... Uh, Robert Hale mm -hmm. and Ernie Sykes and Scott Vestal. We we made one record that was on the Rounder label that would have been reduced, I mean, reduced, would have been um, released in 1989. Oh, cool. Wow. So it's, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's out of print, but it was, it's an interesting record for that time period in bluegrass. It was, it was, it's a really great era of Scott Vestal's play. And he was experimenting with a lot of things that were outside of the, of the bluegrass box, but, but still had this, um, you know, just fundamentals that were so his timing and everything was still in the bluegrass mode. Even when he played the single string kind of stuff, I really love that era of Scott's play and all of his playing, but especially then, but, but that was the beginning of all this for me. And that band, um, toughed it out for about three years and then, we all went our separate ways, and uh, at that point, I joined uh, Russell, you know, with Third Time Out.
How did you start playing mandolin? Pal, it was um, music was around my house growing up. My parents listened to there were constantly albums on the turntable. And my dad played guitar and played fiddle. And he had brothers that played. And on my mom's side of the family, also, I had uncles that played. And when we would gather, you know, like around Christmas, when people had more time off and were able, it wasn't like we lived that far from each other. Everyone was probably within an hour's drive, but just everyone busy, you know, the families with kids and all that. But anytime we got together, music would be played, you know, around the, and sometimes through, even through the summer, uh, when all the kids, myself and my cousins, when we were all out of school, everybody would gather on Friday nights or whatever and just play music. Oh, wow. So nice. the mandolin, there was someone that my dad worked with. Owed, he owed my dad 20 bucks and he gave him this little harmony mandolin instead of the money. Oh, wow. And so he, he, my dad tuned it up and uh, just kind of left it in the living room and told me, he's like, that's off limits. You know, it's, it's not a toy. <laughs> and he, he said that like less than 15 minutes later, I was in there trying to play it. <laughs> nice. So it was like he made it the forbidden fruit, you know, so I, then I couldn't resist it. But that's, you know, it was all over the area that I grew up in was rich in venues. And I used to go see the Lost and Found as a teenager, Larry Sparks, the Bluegrass Cardinals. That was a, a particular place called the mineral springs music barn that was only maybe a 40 minute drive or something from my house so i would go there and then it was only about 15 miles to charlotte north carolina i used to see the tony rice unit play at spirit square and new grass revival at there was a place called the sally gooden in lenore north carolina and another place called green acres so all of these venues and bands that i love were it was easy for me to have access to see live music. So that was right on the heels of, you know, just starting to play music with family members and stuff. I immediately was exposed to professional musicians like that playing live. Oh, wow. That's great. What's some, those are some great acts too. <laughs> yeah. It was very eye opening at the time. It's when I first started to realize the, how much difference there was in music that was all kind of under the bluegrass umbrella but all these different sounds you know with rice's band with uh, with no banjo and i was already such a big fan of the the instrumental records that he made acoustics mar west still inside and backwaters those are four of my absolute favorite recordings ever you know To, and all of that music had a certain spirit to it that would reminded you of bluegrass, but it wasn't at the bluegrass at the same time. And you know, and then of course, newgrass revival with the arrangements that they had. The um, 
oh, what's it called? On the On the Boulevard record. That was that was a record that I listened to so much. My favorite Newgrass albums are Commonwealth, which was the last, I'm pretty sure the last record with the original band, and then On the Boulevard, the first record that Bela and Pat played on. Those were the two Newgrass records that I really listened to heavy. You yeah, know? for sure. Were you um, just transcribing that stuff too, just like learning it like crazy? Well, I ne- again, I never wrote any of it down. The first Newgrass tune that I ever learned, the first time I ever heard Newgrass Revival, they were on Austin City Limits. Oh, yeah. And and I had been to, to jam with some of my buddies there in North Carolina. When I got home that night, this was during the, the Christmas holiday. My dad was watching Newgrass, was on Austin City Limits, and he didn't know who they were either. But uh, my dad said, Wayne, you got to come check this out. This boy is giving the mandolin hell. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was it was Sam. And so the next day, I went to Camelot Music. That might even be before your time. But uh, no, we I know. I worked at a Camelot Music. <laughs> okay. All right, then. Well, I went there, and they had uh, the On the Boulevard record and the first album that Newgrass did on uh, Capitol Records. That was just self-titled. But anyway, the instrumental seven by seven was on that recording. It's um in seven, eight time, which I had at that, I had no idea that that's what that was, but I could feel what they were doing. It's a tune in D minor that uh I learned the head to that tune that night. Oh wow. You cool. know, but like I say, I didn't it wasn't like I tabbed it or anything. I mm-hmm. just wanted to learn how to play it because it that's what that band did to me. I mean, I was so inspired. Man, yeah, Sam Bush does that to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> were you also before like getting into all like the the Tony Rice and the and the Newgrass revival? Were you guys doing like older school bluegrass stuff though with your family? Oh yeah, those were just standards. I mean, the records that my parents played were Flat and Scruggs, Bill Monroe. And Osborne Brothers records. Oh, yeah. That's we listened to that music. And on, you know, my and it's not like my parents were artsy people or anything, but they didn't promote watching TV or anything like that. You know, and, and my dad would uh complain about the music that was on current country radio, <laughs> you know, in the in the mid-80s or whatever, and and uh change the station you know and then and maybe get lucky and find buck owens or something like that on an am station (laughs) right so he i mean he liked music that he recognized music that was real that's good to have that sort of uh that sort of influence you know it is and and it's especially cool when it's not even talked about it's just that was that was his perception of music you know yeah that's so awesome so then you start playing mandolin, and was that like, did you want to play professional music? Is that what you, was that your whole goal at that point then, after you got bit? 
I can't say that it was. No. I mean, I, I liked it, but I, I didn't really think that even though I was going to see these professional bands and stuff, I never really had my my mind set on that until really at any point. I just kind of went with what felt like the right thing to do in life. So I, I continued to play and was immediately in regional bands that would play local venues and uh, private parties or like company parties and stuff like that that we would play. And then um, met Scott Vestal at Denton at the Bluegrass Festival there and, and had jammed with him some at Spigma at the contest. And then he wanted to put the, the live wire, wire group together. And we did. And then uh, the third time out thing came along. I knew there was an opening. I had heard that uh, Lou Reed was playing mandolin with, with them at that time. And I heard the rumor that he was going to leave and join the group. So then just a few months after that, I moved to Nashville and uh, just kind of settled in to play him with third time out. Wow. And that was that was my life. I was, you know, earning a living doing it and, and loved it. So just kind of moved on. And then I was probably in my late 20s when I, I remember thinking, I guess this is it. I guess this <laughs> is what I'm going to do, you know. So it kind of managed to just sneak up on me. That's amazing, man. Did you did you take any like formal lessons at any point during that too, or was it all just kind of like just jamming with family and learning it that way? That was it for wow. me. And but I but I did. I mean, I recognized early on that there was a difference between like going to see Newgrass and you know and and hearing especially Bela the way he improvised it was obvious that he that he was a learned musician as well as somebody that had played you know with bands that were a little more on the traditional side like spectrum when he was you know with that group but it was obvious that he had studied and the same had to be true with tony rice you know listening to his improvisation on on my favorite things that's a tune that they used to do live because most of the stuff that was recorded, you know, with the all instrumental records, most of that I never heard him play live. And so when that would happen and, and what he would play was completely different than what he improvised on the record. And I immediately noticed that and it, it made me want fretboard knowledge that would enable me to do the same thing. So even though I never took lessons, I... I had a theory book that was actually a piano jazz book and I would just, you know, transpose what it was talking about with an arpeggio or a scale that worked over a certain chord progression. I would just play those notes on the mandolin because theory, I mean, it applies the same to any instrument. So that was no lessons, but definitely, you know, trying to learn from players the this would be before your time, but the mandolin quarterly that David Grisman had, I think, a lot to do with this publication. And it was a tiny little book that came out four times a year. I never, never did get it, but like a friend of mine here or there would have a copy of it and, and pass it on to me. And there would be instructional stuff in there from Don Sterenberg and Grisman and guys that I had no idea who they were when I first started seeing these names. And they would be talking about fundamentals like the chord scale and that kind of thing. So I had that kind of information coming at me as well as, hey, I need to 
you know, I need to work on a, a break for Pike County breakdown where, you know, the banjo player, like in a regional band, this amazing player named Eric Ellis that I used to pick with back in those days. Like I wanted to be able to play solid mandolin solos on the bluegrass tunes like that. But the things that I was learning in the other world of the more, what i you know, like to call learned musicianship, those kinds of ideas would always, you know, find their way into what I was playing at the same time. Man, and if people who are listening to this, I have all different age ranges that listen to this podcast, but if you are pre-internet research or not pre or if you're post-internet research where you could just look up <laughs> what to play over a D minor chord you did some you did some uh digging man you did the hard work that was not easy stuff to just find you know no but like those mandolin quarterly uh books at that time would have been a huge resource for anybody learning to play because it's and it's still i mean there's you got to admit as much as we love mandolin it's a short list of people that really care about improvising on a mandolin. For it's sure. still a, a really small niche kind of thing. And that's, I love with the YouTube channel, being able to be a part of that and share it with people. Cause I mean, I'm a bluegrass player. That's what I do, but I, but I love a lot of other things and, you know, everybody I think kind of gets their feet wet in other places musically you know and i think that everyone especially these days because we do have internet and all this that you're you're gonna be like a certain percentage of your playing is you kind of having to battle it out and learn material for a regional band that you're playing with or for myself early on playing fiddlers conventions and working on this body of material and then there's a certain percentage of your musicianship that's fruit of being a learned player. Because if you hear something these days, there's a real good chance that you could find the tab. Right, right. Or something for it. You know, so that in its own way, there's a the learned part of your musicianship. And then there's just the experiences that you have, you know, that tie into the whole social part of how much it enhances our lives to play, just the people that we meet being in regional bands and even as developing relationships with students and all of that, the particular way that all of those experiences fall on you affects your musicianship as well. Yeah. It's, it, I find it really interesting with guys like you mentioned, like Tony Rice, like, you know, if, if, if you just looked, you were not maybe somebody who was really studying Tony Rice, but if you heard the name Tony Rice, you would just assume, Oh, he's just a straight up bluegrass guy. But then it's when you really listen to him, you're like, oh, man, this guy was listening to like Miles Davis and John Coltrane and all sorts of stuff. And that's what made him Tony Rice. It's not just he yeah. sat and listened to bluegrass. He made he took everything and just made it him. And that's what I love. Yes, he did. And I mean, is to me, as um, you won't find another bluegrass artist that has covered, I mean, touched all of the bases. If you look at those the same time frame those instrumental records were being released he was also making the bluegrass album band recordings <laughs> I know. as as well as his solo projects that had lyrics like manzanita right and uh cold on the shoulder which if of all the lyrical records that he made cold on the shoulder was is probably my favorite because it's like it's got it all 
All you need is time. You get a JD Crow fix while you're listening to that record. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, the whole thing happens and his feel and sensibility to playing bluegrass is so real where some players that would be as advanced of an improvisational musician as him don't have that bluegrass feel and that the just that whole groove that bluegrass is played in that's the amazing thing about tony is that his what he does is always so perfect to the moment that he's playing in musically it's uh it's interesting you say that because the it's it's really interesting how i think some guitar players who may um think it's easy to play bluegrass rhythm (laughs) right (laughs) yeah yeah, man, bluegrass is it's a demanding music to play because rhythmically you do have to be so strong. You got to be a lead player, you have to contribute to the vocals. I mean, there's a lot to to work on if you want to be a real asset to a bluegrass band. Yeah, and for as metronomic of a style of music as it is, it revol- it really really requires a lot of feel to be good. Yes, it does. Man, our banjo player with Third Time Out now, Keith McKinnon, has I've heard him put it this way and say a bluegrass band is like four people playing the same drum kit. <laughs> oh, that's and a great it, it, one. It really is. I mean, when you think about the groove and what needs to happen, it's very demanding music to play. That's that's the greatest quote. <laughs> four people playing <laughs> the same drum kit. Yeah. Wow. Was there um was there other music that you were listening to? I one of your videos, and I think it was the uh, the one on the uh, minor scales, maybe or the dark scales. And did you, I, was there a police video or a police tune kind of dropped in there? Oh, that that particular video is about the chord scale. Yeah. The okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And what that the intention there is for again, like the same way that you memorize a bunch of different tunes, but you're not really learning to play the mandolin. A lot of people memorize chord progressions, but they don't really get to the point that they can hear a chord. You know, and, and if you've been playing for six or eight years, you should be able to identify a six minor chord. That was the one that I chose to use. Yeah. And so I played a quick video of Flat and Scruggs with uh they're playing Foggy Mountain Breakdown. goes to a six minor and then i played every breath you take by the police where that first chord change is also to a six minor and and the intention is that everybody will just stop and not really think about technically what the chord scale is but just let that sink in let yourself absorb what that chord sounds like as far as the melody that's being played and the sound of the band when it goes to that chord because i think that everyone is capable of being able to hear chords and write charts like that you just have to start slow and and get a solid foundation and when you play the chord scale nice and slow on whatever instrument 
and you and the chords, you know, fall on your ear. I like that term. It gives you a chance to begin to hear, okay, that's a two minor or that's a three minor. Most of us can hear a four or five chord, you know, but just to help grow that. And I do like to use examples um, outside of the bluegrass world. But back to the question, I think you were about to ask, the police are a band that I really got into probably four or five years ago. I, I like to walk is the way that I try to exercise just in the subdivision that we live in. And I would listen to police records because I was familiar with the hits that they had, mm-hmm. but never did until, you know, having Spotify on my phone. And I could hear the you know entire recordings and I really got into their music, especially the early stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that first album's great. It's amazing, man. It's so far ahead of its time. Yeah. Yeah, and so raw. (laughs) It is. I mean, they were like a punk band. For sure. Um, You know, I mean, it had that flavor to it, but it was still just so, everything about it was great. And it was three people doing it. You know, it's weird. You know how there are so many of the groups from that era, there are all these tribute bands and stuff. You know, and I saw a, a tribute band for the police, and they were a five-piece band. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it would take five five average people to make that much music, I guess. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot <laughs> going on there. That's for sure. Yeah. Now, you, um, so you, you're still in third timeout, but there was, you, there was a little area there where you uh, had left third timeout. I did. It was it was three years that I played with John Cowan. That was I was going to say, what's that like to go from going to see this band that blew your mind to playing with one of the members? It was really something else, you know, and the whole, um, you know, wanting to play music that would lend itself to more improvisation had a lot to do with me making that change at that time. And John, you know, just an amazing vocalist. That's the first thing you're going to think of. But he's he's such a killer bass player. And nobody's a bigger fan of electric bass than me. I, I have a Getty Lee model oh, wow. Fender Jazz. I love electric bass. That's and, awesome, man. Man, so many times, like, going to see Newgrass, you know, as a, a younger guy, my early teen, teenage years, you know, John would be the, I mean, I would watch him play bass just as, just as, you know, with just as much ambition that it would create in me as watching Sam play. I just, I loved his tone and I, to get to play with him on bass was, that was a, a big part of what drew me to, to being in the band as well as his vocals and the material that he chooses to sing. You know, I've been so blessed all these years, you know, uh, playing with Russell, because he's the same way. There's a certain thing that he does. And um, those guys like that are such a big force. You know, if you if you think about J.D. Crow's banjo playing and the way all the different configurations of his band 
play to that certain lope that that crow has cowan's the same way with his voice what happens around him what he does is such a big part that you just become part of it and russell's like that you know you have those guys that are that big of a force i like to to call it that tony rice obviously doyle lawson there are just certain musicians that are so much bigger than what they do it just spreads into the rest of the band how did you have to um go about playing what was the difference mentally i guess that you would go to going into a live gig in third time out versus going to play a gig with john well i mean just definitely more open to the fact that anything could happen i mean it, if it was uh you know a, a night that everybody was really getting into solos and stuff like that as far as the audience john would lengthen like where there would normally be one solo maybe have the whole band end up taking a ride there or then or maybe he would just get on the mic and and say you know wayne and jeff and then the rest of the band would stop and jeff and myself would play whatever the next section of the tune was gonna be and and then then he would you know say noam and shad at this time noam pacowney and Shad Cobb were were in the band also. And then the two of them, just, you know, just the two of them play, or, or he might say, me and Jeff. And so then it would just be bass and guitar. And it was never the same thing two nights in a row musically. It, you know, there was it was the situation was different every time. That's so cool, man. That's a, it is another band with a lot of firepower. <laughs> it's and it's really fun. I mean, it was a, a great thing for me to be in a group with with musicians like that that were so much more used to that approach of everything being more or just more opportunities to improvise. And I just felt like I was hanging on by a thread <laughs> in that, you know, in an atmosphere like that, but it was good for me musically. And I had to face anxiety and stuff like that, which I think is a good thing for a player. I think that we learn a lot musically and I think we grow a lot as people. It's, it's very you build a lot of character when you have to face something like that. And then you, um, right around that, it would be about that same time too, your solo album came out in somewhere in that, or like 2003, the instrumental. I think, I think so. That sounds about right. Cause that was, it was just a collection of the instrumentals that I wrote, you know, in that Pinecastle series, bluegrass 95, bluegrass 96. All the way through 2001, we made those records. So I ended up with eight original tunes in that series, and then I took four more in the studio and recorded them and put the whole thing together to, to you know, to come up with that record. And it's very for me. I I, I don't even know if I improvise on that record at all. It's very 
just different melodies that I wrote. And a lot of times in the arrangements, the way that they just ended up being, you know, the mandolin would intro those tunes because when they were initially arranged, they were just a part of a different recording. So it was interesting to try to sequence all of it and put it together. And it's a lot of those tunes. I mean, the line, I'm, it's like I'm as proud of the liner notes for that record as I am the recording because they're all like real life experiences. It's like if you were trying to write the music that would paint this picture, that's kind of the way that I approach writing instrumental music. When you, If you think about the soundtrack to a movie and how, how much it affects the way a scene hits you if the music to that scene is changed. You know what I mean? Oh, and and life, life is like that too. I mean, if you're having a cup of coffee one morning somewhere on a lake and it's just this beautiful, amazing day, you think about other tunes like Ducks on the Mill Pond. You know, the Kenny Baker tune. It's like, I wonder what was going on when he wrote that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know you know what I mean? Or whiskey before breakfast. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, just real, real tunes like that that are um, not flashy the way that they're written. They're fairly simple melodies that you can walk around and hum. Mm-hmm. Uh, that album was kind of about that theme. And I have a bunch of contrived music that at some point that I would like to release is like it's it's definitely more of a combination of learned musicianship and also things that I that I heard and then maybe I would think okay from there a logical transition would be this chord and things like that that I've put together but I, I don't know if it'll you know if I'll ever get around to recording it I would want if I did something like that I would want it to be in the style of those, um, the Tony Rice instrumental records that I was, you know, mentioned earlier. For sure. I just love that configuration, you know, of instruments. Yeah. Oh, that's cool, man. I hope that, I hope that comes to fruition. Maybe someday it can. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. You mentioned those Pine Castle albums. Holy cow, are those great, man. The Bluegrass 95, 96, 97, that whole series of them. It was a, yeah, that, those were a lot of fun to make. They and and they're very live. We would rehearse a lot of times, like maybe a week prior to being in the studio. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes the day before we were going to start, and we would usually. I know that Bluegrass '96, we cut thirteen tracks that day. We made the twelve tracks for the record, and then we also cut a Christmas tune. That was going to be part of a Pine Castle 
Christmas compilation. And they wanted an instrumental on that record as well. So we did all 13 of those tracks in one day and then <laughs> did the fixes, um, did some overdubs the next couple of days and then mixed it. You know, they're, wow. they're really, really live um, recordings. And a lot of the solos are, are just us playing, you know. How did those? How did that stuff come about? Because they just—they're so influential to a lot of players. And I've heard that you know a lot of you know younger players have told me they listen to those. Mm-hmm. And the way the whole series started was the Bluegrass '95 was actually a solo project for Clay Jones. Oh no, the kidding. guitar player. Yep, he put all of the you know came up with the material that he wanted to record and made a record that David Parmley produced for Pinecastle. And then Clay left the music business. I, I think his kids were young at the time and probably just to make more money, he got out of the music business. So I think Pinecastle at the time was reluctant to release the record on him. And and David Parmley, I, I think I'm getting all this right. It was his idea to just release the record and call it Bluegrass 95 because it featured, there were songs that the banjo was featured on. I think Pike County Breakdown was on that record. And then the fiddle and mandolin kicked off different tunes on it. So it wasn't like it was just guitar kicking off every tune and totally a guitar theme. It worked as a band record. So they released it like that and it ended up winning the IBMA recorded event of the year. (laughs) That's amazing. So, so after that, the, the series just continued. So the, the whole thing was almost like an accident, a happy accident then. Yeah. 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 Those those albums, man, they were definitely, I mean, just great times, you know, we get together and play and then go eat Mexican food, (laughs) then, you know, go back to the studio and record. It was really laid back. And I think that comes across in the spirit because I like to think of a recording, you know, you can build something with a metronome and I've recorded some records right here in my home for some local people and you can make something so you know right on with a metronome especially with today's technology but there's something about when you capture three minutes that just happened that the spirit of that recording lives on you know and if you know how to listen to music you can grow to appreciate it for that exact thing that's you know when you go back and listen to that the whole era of music in the late 70s and early 80s there was so much creativity in so many different genres of music and a lot of that happened to where great moments like that were captured and you don't hear very many people even approach being in the studio like that anymore but it sure is fresh when you do yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, some of the best stuff just, you know, you, you can tell the difference, I think, a lot of times between, you know, again, not to use the word metronomic again, but like that bluegrass is so natural that way that um, there's been a couple albums I've, like that I heard that were recorded with a metronome that blew my mind because they feel so natural. And, you know, then there's others where you're like, oh, yeah, it just seems so stiff. <laughs> Yep. And I think there's been an evolution in bluegrass of musicians getting better at playing with the metronome and still having it sound 
realistic. Mm-hmm. But but some of the early recordings in bluegrass that were done with a click track, you can I I, I can hear it. You, I mean, you can tell that it was recorded. But you're right; there are projects that are so the musicianship playing with the metronome has evolved to a point that it's not as detectable as it was early on. But right. there's still just something about, you know, a bluegrass album band record and that live feel. And oh. if you listen listen to a cut, Bela Flex Drive album obviously is, you know, one of the best instrumental records ever. Mm-hmm. And and any of those records like that, you can't sit there and and, you know, get a metronome to run with the recording the timing's not perfect but it's it's so totally isn't about that the feel of those recordings it's it's just it's really special and it's though the music in our genre that makes me feel like that when i hear it anymore it's just few and far between you know recordings that really do that to you and move you that way yeah i agree i agree it's that intangible you know what i mean it's just you can't yep. plan it it just it has to happen that's right. And then you've, you've done like a lot of session work as well. I mean, you've been on like some of those picking on tribute albums and uh, different things like that. But also when I saw your Wikipedia, um, I actually uh, I remember this song by that band, The Wreckers, with Michelle Branch. Um, I, oh, gosh, now I can't think of the name of the song. Um, but you were on like The Tonight Show and CBS and The Late Late Show and a bunch of a bunch of like national television shows on big networks. Yeah, that was I didn't actually play on that recording, but I was on I was a part of the promotional tour. Yeah, yeah. That they did. Yeah. So it was the song was called Leave the Pieces. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it had this mandolin intro on the front of it, just this really short little melody. If and if I'm not mistaken, it was in E flat. Oh wow. I think the cut was in E flat, but that was they needed somebody to play that mandolin part. And this was during um, the years that I was playing with Cowan and schedule wise. It just worked out, you know, for me to, you know, to be a part of that, too. And it was very interesting for me. I mean, a very eye opening to be a part of something on that scale that was as commercial as that was with uh media people and um i mean just a completely different world as far as publicity and to and to have access to the tonight show and that kind of thing to to promote your music i don't think the reality of that ever really sunk in for me until being a part of it is like man millions of people just heard that (laughs) you know you'd spend your whole career as a bluegrass musician and never expose your music to that many people. Yeah, it's amazing. In, in an entire career, you won't do it. Yeah, it's it is something. Wow, that's so cool, man. And is that just something that came about? Just somebody recommended you for the gig? It was. I, I again, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think Andrea Zahn, that um, a great fiddle player and writer and singer and just amazing person. If I'm not mistaken, she was the one that somehow recommended me for that because i do i remember her being a part of some things that we did that might have been for radio i just remember the first time that i played with michelle and jessica andrea being there in nashville oh what an experience yeah it really was it was like i say nothing that i've you know ever been a part of was that 
successful in in terms of how many people were aware of it and the number of record records of that that they must have sold. Right. T- totally different thing than when you think of a successful bluegrass project and what the magnitude of it compared to that just a different world yeah oh cool though glad you got to experience that yeah me too it came along at a perfect time monetarily (laughs) with uh we Kristen was pregnant with our son hogan and uh we had canceled our maternity insurance oh no yeah whoa yeah she we we never she never did get pregnant we we never did and we found out the secret to fertility is to cancel your maternity insurance <laughs> <laughs> oh that's classic um and you were also um you you recorded on a willie nelson album too Sure did. Yeah, that, now, did a num- number of years back. Yep. Did you now? Did you get to meet Willie and do that there? Or was that kind of like a session thing where you went in and just did it? No, it was the strangest thing. I didn't actually meet him, but we at that time, um, third time out was we did a, a record for the Cracker Barrel label, and we were we were in the studio there in Nashville. I can't remember which one it seems like we worked in a couple or three different places at different times and the there were two rooms at this studio and willie nelson's bus was parked and we were too at this studio and somebody that was on that session or playing on it or involved with that recording walked past the the door was open to the control room that we were working in. I wasn't in there at the time. And Steve Dilling, our banjo player at the time was sitting there listening to a playback and somebody stuck their head in the door and said, who's that playing the mandolin? And Steve said, that's Wayne. And they said, is he here? And, and the, and Steve said, yeah, I think he's, you know, getting a sandwich or something in the, in the lounge. And anyway, they, they just heard me playing and they needed mandolin on that cut. So I just, I didn't even take my case. I just carried the mandolin down the hall. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. You, just being in the right place at the right time. Now it's probably a good time to also bring up the fact that you are one of the few people that actually has a Gibson signature mandolin made for you. That's right. Dude, what is that? What is that like? How is that? Uh, you... Oh man, it's, it's amazing, you know, and it, it isn't which the, Versions of those that they did for Alan Bobby and Adam Steffi and myself, they were limited to 50 mandolins each. And I'm pretty sure the Doral Lawson and Sam Bush models you can still get Mm -hmm. even now if you want to. But yeah, it's like the ultimate honor, you know, growing up loving Bill Monroe and the Gibson F5, that classic design. And it was such a cool thing for Danny Roberts to, to come up with um that series of instruments because he didn't have to do that i mean gibson mandolins would have been fine without any of the three of us ever putting our names (laughs) on them as far as alan and adam and myself so we all owe that to danny you know for making it happen but it was a great experience the the color on mine cosmetically that was like an f4 i'm pretty sure that they had there at the factory and we that cherry sunburst was um that was danny's idea to use that color and also the matte finish 
not having the shine on the instrument. You know, I, I really like that. And the no inlay in the fretboard, that was like Rice's guitar. I always thought it looked so cool with no inlay. And also, the I'm a Fern guy. You know, I have an, an old a 20s Fern Gibson, and I love that overlay. And it really stands out when you don't have anything in the fretboard. The Fern really jumps out at you and i like the abbreviated pick guard mm-hmm. as well instead of going all the more traditional look all the way down with the bracket so it was kind of a combination of ideas that we both had because re- honestly the only difference in any of those mandolins is is cosmetic there as far as the graduation of the top and all of that now the sam bush model the neck profile way bigger you know trying to copy hoss right and i've i had an early i think it was a 2001 sam bush model that i owned for a while and it would take some getting used to to play a neck that big sure for, for me it would but as far as the other models I, i'm pretty sure i'm telling you the right thing that it's it's only cosmetic differences i played one of yours up at elderly instruments i mean holy cow this is a lot of years ago um, and they had one. I don't. I don't remember if it was used or not. But I was definitely like, "Oh man, man!" I'm pretty sure I I ended up buying that one. Oh no way! I'm really? pretty sure. Yeah, I think they had it at IBMA at one point. It was it was an earlier number. Oh yeah. And uh, wow. I've owned I've owned a bunch of them. Like anytime those come up for sale, I keep a logbook of the ones that I've actually played, I tried to, to make notes about them and stuff. And if, if it's one that I haven't played, I'll buy it, you know, cause oh, uh, oh, whichever, whichever one is, if there's like just this cracker Jack in there somewhere that I've never played, I'd love to get a hold of it, you know, yeah, for sure. And it's fun. It's fun to own them and, you know, set them up and just to experience each one of them because it is, I mean, it's a real honor. That's so cool. How many of them do you think you've? Uh, how many of them do you think you've owned? This I, I'm going to say it's twelve to fifteen. <laughs> wow, different ones that I've had. Yep. And so what? Are the, you, now, you, are you playing a different mandolin though in the in the YouTube videos? Yes, that's one of Jonathan McClanahan's. Yeah, that's what F5s. I thought. F5s. Yeah, beauties. it is. Yeah, man, it's a really fun mandolin to play, and I just love Jonathan to death as a person. But this is – I'm about to go into year six of of playing a McClanahan. The first one that I had, I mean, I absolutely loved it. This particular mandolin he built for someone else, and then after that, he, he had re- it was one of my students, and after he received the mandolin – ended up becoming a bass player (laughs) so he sold this mandolin and i i loved it so i was able to buy this one from the student of mine that jonathan built the instrument for originally i guess i've been playing it for about two years now it's easy to lose track of this stuff but i think this summer would makes two years that I've owned this one, and it, I just really love playing it. That's awesome. Is it kind of like your main axe then? It is. I mean, since um, I've started playing J- Jonathan stuff about six years ago, I haven't been on stage with anything else. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's nice. I haven't. I have not played one in person, but man, his uh, 
Instagram is drool worthy posts of some beautiful mandolins and you're just yeah, like, man. you, you know, they have to sound good if they look that good. That's it's it does make you believe they're gonna because they are eye candy, as they say. Yeah. And he does. He, he seems pretty passionate about the building process, too. He is. He's, um, I think, pretty much a mad scientist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's he's he definitely has put a lot of thought into it. He's Jonathan has figured a lot of stuff out. The first one that I had, especially, it was like the neck on that instrument was so perfect. I would let like one guy would play it and 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 would say, "Man, I love a." beefy neck man i like a builder that's not afraid to put a, a you know some neck in the mandolin and i would just say yeah man jonathan's he's got a lot of stuff figured out then the next guy that would play it would say man i love this thin neck i like these <laughs> necks on the small side you know it's like it nobody ever played that instrument that didn't fall in love with the the feel of the neck and it's you know that's the difference between something that's uh, fussed over like that because it really does matter to him. Mm. What about um, like strings and picks and stuff? Do you have any sort of preference for that? Well, that's changed for me re recently. I've, as of January 1st of this year, I, I ch officially changed my pick hold from like two fingers, my middle finger and my index finger on the bottom of the pick. Uh -huh. And and that's what I did for years. And for a couple of years, I was having issues with a condition called frozen shoulder with my right shoulder, like loss of range of motion. That's not cold on the shoulder, right? <laughs> no, no. This was, well, I needed to apply some, some cold to it. And I would from time to time ice it down, but I'm not sure if that pick hold was just catching up to me after that many years, but I would also fatigue. Like my hand would just get tired. I was learning. Um, there's a cut, a fiddle tune that I've always intended to learn and was finally getting around to it. It's called Howdy in Hickman County. It was recorded by Sam Bush and Alan Mundy, but written by Howdy Forrester. Oh, cool. And it's, um, it's like a four-part tune, and then there's one variation of one of the parts that happens. So it's like five parts, you know. And when you're learning something like that, and you break it down into those sections, and it's it requires a lot of playing to get, you know, to the point that you can execute something like that the, as clean as you want to be able to. And I would, And it would just... I would just have to stop playing. And uh, so I started in October of 2019, really started to play with this pick hold pretty much all the time at home, but I wasn't confident enough yet on stage to do it. So I finished the year on stage with the other pick hold, which was such a weird thing to be two different things like that going on. Then I committed to it at the beginning of 2020. And then that's the one thing about the pandemic 
because I was like a ball of nerves on stage, <laughs> you know, changing your pick hold like that. It was really something to go through. And uh, once the pandemic, you know, got here, I, I it relieved that pressure of, of playing live. But anyway, back to your question, I got so sidetracked. I had always I had always played the blue chip um, like a teardrop 40 was the pick that I had used for 15 years, however long blue chip has been in business. And what I landed on after the change is the tad um, 50. It's a way. Yeah. It's a thicker pick and a big triangular shape. Yeah. That's, that's what feels good um, with this uh, pick hold that I'm, that I'm using now. So I was, you know, still, struggling with that you know er earlier in the year and it's just now in the last few i'm going to say couple of weeks it almost feels more natural to do this than what i was doing before you know but you hear of people i mean players and and if they change something technique wise like they take two years off of touring or something to adapt to it so i'm trying to be i'm trying not to beat myself up over the transition but it sure has been a great thing and i enjoy like just sitting at the house drinking coffee and playing the mandolin is a pleasure to me again like it was way early on playing wow that's a huge huge thing to do to change the way you've held something or for all (laughs) that's amazing It is. And I don't I think it would t- definitely take another musician, another player to realize how how tough that is to do. Well, good. I hope that it shows your shoulder doesn't bother you any longer either. I yeah, it's it, fix. it is. It's way better. I've just yeah. recently as I when I walk, you know, like I was talking about before, listening to the police records and stuff. I like to stop when I go by my house and I'll do just some really light stuff with free weights. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, sure. and I'm back to the point that, um, that I can actually do that again. I'm not really doing anything overhead yet, sure. but, but definitely better. And it's, it's weird that kind of thing. Cause I, I went to physical therapy and some people recommend that heavy, you know, like figure out what's going to work and do it four to six times a day if you can whatever the exercises or stretches might be that are recommended and then other people would say man don't even move it what you want is total rest to get past this condition so who do you believe (laughs) right you know (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh yeah no pressure (laughs) it's just your career (laughs) wow um what about uh strings Man, I have played D'Addario strings f- since I was 19 years old with playing with Livewire. And and I love them. Man, recently they've so many great things have been introduced. The X's that are like a coated string, I love those and the Chris Thiele, the ones that had it says New York steel on the pack. Those are am- amazing and the new mono strings, the ones that sam is playing i love the brightness i usually play those if i'm going to record i do a good bit of over overdubs and stuff here at the house for people and i'll usually put a set of those on for that brighter sound but as far as something that's going to last just incredibly 
those coded strings are, I mean, they're, they're hard to beat. And I love the feel. I love the gauges of them too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the, those coded strings, man. When you have to, uh, if you've got a run of gigs in a row and you just don't want to change strings yeah, every night, those are the I best. Get, man, for you living in Charleston, playing gigs in August, oh, yeah. you definitely, you yeah. need some strings that have, that are going to last. For sure. Yeah. I did one, one week I did 13 gigs in Charleston and uh, I had to change the coded strings twice. <laughs> I would imagine so, but man, that's still that's still really good performance out of strings to to change to change twice in that number of gigs. Absolutely, yeah. That you can't complain with that. Yeah, no, not at all, not at all. So I got two more questions for you here, Wayne. The first one is one of the favorites on there, and it is if you had ten minutes a day to recommend somebody to play, you know, not everybody's got hours a day. Well, with the pandemic, more people probably than, than before. But when I started the podcast, not everybody had hours to play. And, um, I'd like to ask if you just had 10 minutes to tell somebody to work on something to help them become better can be anything. What's something you would recommend? Man, I would have to say, um, I would recommend if whatever melody that you're learning, if you're working on a fiddle tune or a a head to a swing tune, whatever it is, I would say to work on that and, you know, playing it with the, the feel, the, the timing and the dynamic and all that really represents the tune that you're working on and to play the fundamental along with it. If you're, if you're playing, um, Meet the Flintstones in B flat. After you practice the head a couple of times, play that scale and and let that become a habit that no matter what key signature you're playing out of, something about that fundamental on the fretboard should grow along with the tune experience. And with just 10 minutes a day, each one of those tunes that you're going to memorize also puts a check mark on the fundamentals that we need to know on the fretboard. So that would be my recommendation if you had 10 minutes. Obviously, you want to work on a, a song, something that's fun to play, but don't let your rehearsal be void of progressing also as a learned musician or learned mandolin player. That's perfect. And actually, I forgot I have I have a bonus question for you, but I'll get to that in a second. So the next question I normally ask right after this 10 minutes a day one is, do you have a particular beer that you like to drink? Man, I'm not I'm not particular about beer. I like anything Sierra Nevada makes. Oh, you yeah. Know, I, yeah. I enjoy a, a great IPA. You know, I would have to say, you know, if it's, it gets too hot. You know, outside, if I'm cooking on the grill or whatever, I don't want something that's overly heavy if I'm going to have a beer while I'm cooking, maybe a Corona. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely. But, I've, you know, when I was younger and, you know, drinking Miller Light or, or Natty Light or whatever <laughs> all the time, yeah. for me now, it's, you know, I'd rather have one quality beer. <laughs> for sure. And this is this is interesting how this came up because... You said Sierra Nevada, and um, I asked Sierra Hull, who I interviewed a few weeks back, um, if she had a question for you, and she loved the third Time Out Records, used to listen to them all the time, and she wanted to know how you got so good at triplets. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> Man, I guess just by playing them. You know, that's that would be the only way I would know to answer that. Sure, sure. If 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 I had um if there was a solo that I was gonna play triplets in, it was definitely something for me that was premeditated. Gotcha. It wasn't like as an improvising player that I was just gonna try to rip over a set of triplets. So I would take and this is a great again, like into the whole good practice habits that we all need to develop. If there's a certain section of any melody or any solo, if you're going to play it the same way every time, instead of playing the whole fiddle tune, if there's one stretch of it that gives you more trouble, then you want to put eggs in that basket and isolate that part of the tune that gives you more trouble when it comes to execution. So I would do that with anything that I was working on. And then if it was a solo that had triplets in it, I would just play that section of the solo over and over and over to work on that part to where it really just gets to be this almost like muscle memory that your execution and anything that you really want to be able to play great. If you're playing can be Appalachian fiddle tunes or like Kenny Baker fiddle tunes. If you really want to be able to execute something like that, the, your best, you have to know it so well that you don't even think about it when you play it. You know, it's, it's a tall order and you can certainly hear that, in her musicianship. Yeah. You know, for sure. Yeah. She's, she's real good. <laughs> oh gosh, man. She, I, man, if I had to choose right now in the mandolin world, she's probably my favorite improvising mandolin player, the stuff that she does. And, and it could be on, you know, something that's way, you know, on the edge of even calling it bluegrass, something way outside, or if she's just, you know, playing a, a solo on um, Foggy Mountain Breakdown, what she would do just has this really neat pocket of being super creative, but it always fits mm -hmm. the situation. Just a few years back, we were at the same playing a festival in Missouri together, and I got to listen to uh, both of the sets that she did that day. This was a way more bluegrass sounding ensemble and it her playing was just every note is you know clean and uh, so tasteful you know that she can play what a good ways out from the melody and still make it work yeah yeah there's a lot a lot going on in her playing that just blows my mind yeah me too. Yeah, and and your playing as well man thank you so much for doing this I've I've loved your playing for years and years and um, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast. Yeah, Daniel, it's my pleasure, man. I'm I'm glad to be associated with the mandolin community, and we've needed what you're doing for a long time. Oh man, thanks. Well, I'm glad to hopefully be filling filling the void. Great. All right, there you have it, Wayne Benson. So good. What a great guy, man. So nice. Anyway, thanks y'all for listening. Really appreciate it. Um, be sure to check out Caleb Edwards' lessons. Check out my sponsors and go to mandolinsofbeer.com. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>